0: fear factor of, of M.J. was so, so thick. Yeah, let's not get it wrong.
1: He was an a- He was a jerk. He crossed the line numerous times. But as time goes on and you think back about what he was actually trying to
2: accomplish, yeah, he was a hell of a teammate.
0: Welcome back to 77 Minutes in Heaven, the Dallas Mavericks podcast on the Athletic Podcast Network. I am Brian Damaris. He is Mark Folliwell, the TV play-by-play voice. How are you, Mark?
1: I'm good. I'm good. Looking forward to today's episode as I look forward to all of our episodes.
0: And we have another great special guest uh, continuing the absolute A-list huge names. That's right. We have The Athletic and The Ticket's own Bob Sturm joining us.
1: And he has tremendous insights on The Last Dance, which has sustained us in the sports world and the sports talk podcast world, uh, and this, uh, difficult and unprecedented time. So obviously Bob has, uh, just some amazing in-depth, insightful thoughts on that, um, and where we are in sports right now. And so, uh, you know, can't wait for everybody to get to hear all of the great things that the Sterminator has to say.
0: And, you know, it's an interesting discussion because I think I was on the other side of him a lot uh, on some of the talk about MJ, but he really turned me in some some interesting directions and, and actually convinced me of one or two things. Mm-hmm. Uh, not everything, but I think it's a it's great perspective to hear. And then after that, uh, you and I will continue our discussion on our thoughts on the whole doc and then the latest in uh, the openings of practice facilities and all that. So let's get right to it. All right, follow-will. We are now joined by the great athletics and the Ticket's own Bob Sturm.
1: Thanks for joining us, Bob.
2: Gentlemen, this is a pleasure. I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller.
1: Hey, can I tell you a a quick funny story before we get started, Bob? And that is that um, you hold a special place in the uh, weird follow-will brain and the numbers and the things that get stored in there. I would uh-huh. say that these days, you know how we are with cell phones now. Yep, uh, sir. You, you just put a number in and then you have it saved by the person's name and that's how you call people. But there are a handful of people, uh, my mother, my wife, Expo, Dave Keeney, my producer with the Mavs and you and maybe a couple of other people but there are still a handful of people's numbers who I know without even looking it up and you are one of those people from just knowing your number for so long and calling it that I don't even oh. have to look up your number to call. if 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 I wanted to I could just I could that's, give your phone around on the podcast right now I'm not going to do that I'm I'm a nice guy wonderful. like that but
2: <laughs> okay <laughs> but Well, I would uh, <laughs> love to talk to all the listeners of course but. <laughs>
1: <laughs> maybe going, another time yeah perhaps another time so well no it's great to, it's great to have you on and uh obviously we have lots of good uh we hope good questions anyway about uh something we've been watching very closely for the last five weeks
2: yeah absolutely i'm uh i'm flattered to be asked, and uh let's fire away let's go
0: so bob i know you've been watching i, I was wondering if uh Kind of talking about the generational divide on MJ and, you know, a lot of the scuttlebutt is that he did this because in 2016, LeBron uh, said he was the GOAT. And I actually agreed to this on the same day that the Cavs parade was. So have your kids been watching and, you know, do what do they think after seeing this Comparing them to you know LeBron, Steph, KD, Dirk, you know the they're their heroes of today. Do do they think Jordan's the goat, or you know how is that playing with the younger generation?
2: Yeah, uh, that's that's a great question, and I think it's it's perhaps part of a, a uh, larger uh, view of how we treat legends in their time and legends after their time. Right. Um, in fact, I think it's only getting more pronounce the difference between current big names and past big names, just because uh, social media is almost taking off another level of armor or wrapping paper or uh, invulnerability or however you want to describe it. And so I think it kind of does it on its own that, you know, in the case of Michael Jordan, you're really talking about a brand name and A literal brand name. And so the kids don't need that uh, explained to them. Like my kids probably need Gretzky explained to them way more than they need Jordan because of Air Jordan. And so now you're talking about the details and you're talking, but, but I think they already think whoever had this entire brand named after them or fashioned after them, they must be A superhero, and 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 now there's another group which is uh, perhaps not my kids, uh, but uh, you know maybe my radio kids, uh, the guys that kind of maybe grew up listening to me, and now they're in the business. Now that's a different level because they're uh, somewhere around their 25th or 30th birthday, and I think for them they were actually alive for the tail end of Jordan. But their memories of that have kind of been put aside almost like Barney the Dinosaur, and then they assume anything that's come along in modern times, just like a television or a car or anything, must be better. So a basketball star of today, just by pure uh, progress is better than anything the nineties could have produced. And I think the last dance is very useful for them. I've heard a lot of people walk that back, whether Jordan did it because of LeBron, I I, I'm kind of skeptical that I think it makes a good story, but I, I really think it's just more of a human journey that when you get in your mid fifties, you're now far enough away that it feels like forever ago, but you're also hypothetically and hopefully far enough away from death that it just seems like a good time to kind of tell your grandkids, even if you don't actually have grandkids, uh, about uh, about what you accomplished. I, I think that's pretty normal parade or no parade. But like I said, it probably makes a better story.
0: You know, it's interesting you answer it that way, because I think, you know, why Jordan has such an outsized influence in our lives is that, A, he, he – Took the game, you know. I think Bird and Magic took the game national in the eighties. He took the game global in the nineties. Yeah, and I think secondly, uh, just the brand. He was the first athlete that I can think of that became a brand, and now that's all you hear about, right? How do you how do mm-hmm. you start your brand? But I think may, maybe a lot of what he wanted to do here was say, yes, I, I made it global. I became a brand, but what I really care about is basketball and i wanted to show he had an interesting quote uh i can't remember exactly but he said you know a lot of people you know don't really love basketball they love what the game provides for them and he he yeah. really loved competing in basketball and i think what he wanted to show everybody was yes the shoes the global brand the Gatorade but you know here's what i was in between the lines
2: yeah that's great uh i i think uh on that, first of all, there, there are some of us, and I think perhaps all three of us in this conversation, that knew Jordan before we knew Air Jordan. So we followed the player on some level, and then the brand came along. And, and I assume that's a different relationship with a guy than discovering the brand first and kind of tracing it backwards. Uh, as for Michael, I do think that those of us who are very close to professional sports understand the amount of money that's out there and then understand how life altering that money is. So we're never shocked if somebody's life is actually altered by life altering money, if that makes sense. And so there's way more guys out there who have kind of their hunger extinguished by the life to a point where maybe they don't, dig as hard as they once did, once they get whatever carrot that might be. Now, for some people, that might be a championship. For some people, it's just making the pros. Uh, And then there's other people, and very, very few, I think, that never have that hunger extinguished a bit. In fact, it might grow because they're not chasing anything in modern times. They're chasing the legends. The two guys that come quickly to mind for everybody would be Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods, partly with Tiger Woods. It's because he has told you a thousand times that he had Jack and Arnie on his wall in his bedroom. Uh, so, so he put the narrative out there like when he was not even 10 years old, he was telling people, that it's my plan to be the greatest golfer on the planet. And there's no number of private jets or vacation homes that can accomplish that. And so, um, I, I guess, I, you know, that's the weird thing about both those guys. It might make them partly sy- psychotic or at least unrelatable, but, uh, but, but I have never lost a fascination for guys that treat sport like this never ending life journey that they'll never actually get to perfection but they're gonna try to get it every day and 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 that's why i realize the last dance can paint him in an unlikable like for a lot of uh, light for a lot of people but for me i i don't don't know that i saw anything in there that made me think less of michael jordan and maybe that makes me a flawed guy but I don't know, that's, uh, he, for, for me. He encapsulates everything that all of us ever tried to accomplish ourselves in any game that we would call a sport. I think
1: it's a, a great answer, a very comprehensive answer. I'll, I'll try to ask a follow-up to it that might take you <laughs> to a little bit of new ground, and and that is yeah. that that is there anything from it? And, and look, you can address this from the basketball aspect of it, or you can address the cultural icon aspect of it. Whatever whatever you choose, whatever stands out based on this question, but was a particular particular nature of the story told in such a unique way that it was eye opening or a teaching moment even for you bob or was it did you feel like it all went over ground that you were intimately familiar with or were your eyes besides you know It's it was a pizza, a bad pizza game, not the flu game. (laughs) Besides that, (laughs) besides that obvious thing at the end, was was there something that you found uh, particularly enlightening about what you saw over 10 episodes?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that, I think it was too great a piece of uh, work, uh, art, perhaps, or whatever you want to call a ten-hour a documentary. I think it was too great a piece of history to say I didn't learn anything. I learned a ton, um, a, a few things off the top of my head. Uh, the man for twenty-five years, I kind of feel like his baseball career was couched as a unmitigated waste of time and a failure. And for the first time in this documentary, and maybe this, uh, you know, only amplifies the idea that, uh, um, you know, it was obviously slanted in, in his benefit, but this was the first time I heard other humans of, uh, of, of great respect kind of say, Hey, do you guys realize how hard it is to hit 200 and double A if you haven't played baseball in 15 years, like, You're a professional basketball player and you literally picked up another sport after your 30th birthday and did it at least at a non-embarrassing level. I guess, I guess for 25 years, baseball people assured me it was embarrassing. And then I don't know why, maybe it was that five minutes of that documentary, but I'm like, yeah, I, I don't know that another human could reasonably leave something at age 17, resume it at age 32 and, uh, you know, I, and maybe even back then I, I saw, uh, hitting 200, uh, as, as, as something only Bob Euchre would do. Um, so, so. So maybe uh, uh, success is, is is you know an intriguing thing, but I, I would say I think it was a 15 game hit streak that they uh, that they uh, reported upon, and yeah. I, I I think at the, in the present tense the media was just so darn cynical about a why is he not playing basketball for us anymore and b. Who does he think he is playing baseball now? Um, and we're supposed to follow this like uh, he's still Michael Jordan. So so I think everybody was just in such a bad mood about his decision or whatever you want to describe that as that nobody treated it fairly. Almost, uh, you know, I mean, like Tim Tebow right now might actually be getting a more fair view of his baseball career. Than Michael Jordan did. And Tim Tebow really didn't take much time away from baseball off at all. Uh, Then the other things I learned uh, that were interesting was even his return feels like it was attached completely um, to the baseball work stoppage of 1995 or the lockout. And, And I guess I had never put those two things together. So if baseball has their labor act in gear, do we not see the I'm back facts? That spring, I I don't know, but I guess I had never considered that until Michael tells us about you know his B.J. Armstrong breakfast and and how the domino started falling from that. So there were there were some really cool things. Um, I would say Michael the man, uh, you know, it's 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 a little more uh, you know wrapping paper perception and even the footage they choose from because. Uh, I realize uh, that Michael Jordan had absurd numbers of uh, loyalists and fans that just would not be moved from his spot at the top of the pyramid. And I'm probably uh, one, uh, I, I would not say I'm chief amongst them, but I but I, I think at least of my colleagues uh, at the station, I, I think I might be the most convinced he's the greatest and uh, also he's not. A bad guy for that pursuit of greatness. Uh, I think everyone else either wants to uh, paint him as a uh, full of themselves, uh, self-promoting, uh, you know, psychopath and bad guy and bad friend and has no friends and you know just whatever. Um, so I think I think there's a line, and I don't know if it's generational, and I don't know if it's uh, how did you feel about him in the '90s, and I don't I don't even know if it's did you play sports. And therefore, are you aware that there are fights and practices twice a year in every sport at every level above, like, fifth grade? Um, and does that upset you, or do you just think it's normal and you don't even pay any attention to it? I'm probably in the second group there, even though I played sports at very, very low levels. I had been involved in enough pushing matches and maybe even, uh, you know, uh, an occasional punch thrown that it didn't even phase me, whereas other people were aghast. At uh, how dare he, um, you know, do that sort of thing. So um, that was interesting, and and, and really though, um, as as I as I carry on for several minutes here, Mark, and I apologize for which, that. Which, I which, suppose which, uh, which, which uh, quite all right. But, but you guys knew what you signed up for when you invited me on the show. Uh, the uh, the the just the study of the alpha and the beta in the sports locker room, and even on an NBA roster is is never ending fascination for me um there's you know and, and, and maybe i've i've only grown to find this more fascinating since i became a uh, you know a an aquarium owner and and you just see the mental or the uh, uh sorry about the airplane here the the human condition of personality traits and how they change for nine people when a tenth man steps into a room and and i i think we saw whether it be uh, Michael Jordan, Scotty Pippen, uh, Dennis Rodman, or Horace Grant. I mean, we just saw that everyone kind of falls in line behind the alpha. You know what? The, the 92 Dream Team was the most uh, interesting study of this because they're all alphas. But here is an alphas alpha. And and, and so I, I think it's interesting. Uh, maybe it's best explained through the perception of Scottie Pippen because scotty pippen depending on who you talk to him had his career altered uh in one direction because he got to play next to michael jordan the whole way he had it altered in the other direction because michael jordan was such an overpowering bully who never gave him a chance to get his money or the chance to get uh you know his uh big shots and his accolades and i i you know I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle, guys. But, but I, I just think that's uh, really interesting to me. And we see it in all sports, but in basketball, the locker room is so small that I don't think football could produce this sort of thing. I think in Alpha... Uh, would not have the same effect in a locker room and and also uh, in the record. And I think we see that all the time where really good quarterbacks are on really bad teams and they can't do anything about it. And certainly Michael Jordan or LeBron James would never have that same effect. So there's a, uh, there's a, a small list. That uh, that I thought uh, was worthy of conversation. Uh, each and every one of them, uh, to different extents. And, and
1: I think those are that's those are all great answers. I'm especially glad that someone who did uh, punch expo after the infamous cross check <laughs> uh,
0: admitted that he's okay
1: with understands that punches happen in practices and games and things like that. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, there's a place for him. <laughs> I appreciate that. All right, all right. <laughs> l- l- let me let me pose this thought of it to you. And, and I admit that that this is from a guy whose life has been. Married Mavericks basketball for two decades. And so yes. uh, if, if you think this is a silly way that I kind of walked away from it, then I'm, I'm perfectly happy to stand down. But but I loved I loved every second of what I watched. The one thing I didn't love and that made me sort of sad was that the ascendancy of Jordan, uh, you know, during the late 80s, the Mavs still were, were quite relevant, obviously, during his ascendancy. But once Jordan reached the mountaintop and stayed at the mountaintop, happened to coincide with the period of just absolutely dread irrelevancy for our local and beloved mavericks and so yeah. so the fact that the Pacers the Cavaliers the Knicks the Jazz the Sonics the Trailblazers I mean not that every team in the NBA was going to have their moment as part of the as supporting actors in the Jordan drama you couldn't get all right. other other teams in there but it, it did make me sad and I have some numbers maybe we'll, we'll get into in a minute but but just you know this is just uh to, something to set you up with here it, it made me sad that the Mavs were were like a t- total afterthought and their biggest mention in the entire thing was that they had to pick in the 84 draft after Jordan got selected, and there were <laughs> they were they were nowhere to be found on the NBA radar during a time that Michael Jordan was the dominant figure uh, in in global sports, not just the NBA, obviously, but global sports. And that was that was kind of a, a bummer for me. And and if that's a weird way to watch it, then like I said, I'll I'll, I'll stand down based on the advice of the Terminator on that
2: one. <laughs> No, not at all. I I, I, I have a similar uh, feeling about my uh, childhood heroes in Green Bay uh, when the Cowboys and Forty ers were uh, the only relevant NFC teams for for a long, long time. And it's it's a weird experience because the history books of that very pivotal time in your life has no record of any of the games you cared about. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's uh it's a very yes, that's a very weird experience. I, I, I might I might ask you though. Um, do you do you think about it in the other direction, uh, which is something that Tiger and Michael have both had a, a profound effect on their sports, which is the other guys who were absolutely the best in the world at what they did for a long, long period of time will kind of vanish without a trace only because their birth years coincide with his. And... I think that's best discussed through the Utah jazz. Uh, I watched those final two hours and all I could think of was, this is very, very similar to the Mavs narrative of the, uh, of the odds and the never ending pursuit to get to the top of the mountain and uh, plant your flag, as I think Coop said. Yes. And and um, from that standpoint, to have essentially two Dirks, and then uh, no disrespect to our hero, but Stockton and Malone are not top liver. I don't know where they all rank relative to each other, but I, I believe they will all uh, be in the same wing at the Basketball Hall of Fame uh, shortly. And with that in mind, they kind of matched up their careers perfectly, they kind of were iconic. Uh, once in a generation type players playing together the entire way and they never planted their flag on top of the mountain. And that is maybe Michael Jordan's biggest effect on his sport is so many guys uh, will just kind of vanish into the wind a little bit uh, to future generations because they played the, uh, the, the bit parts in his story.
0: So, Bob, I want to get back to this uh, MJ as a jerk discussion real quick. And I know sure. kind of where you are and where some other people on the station are. And, and, and
2: he might be a jerk, by the way. I don't, I don't want to rule out that he's a jerk. But, uh, sure. but I just don't think it's as big as people make it to be. But go on. I'm sorry.
0: Well, I think the thesis I have is that he needed these slights, uh, whether perceived or real, um, these battles internally to motivate him. That, that's what yeah. made him successful. Uh, but I think the mistake he made is that he thought everyone is motivated the same way he is. Some people are motivated by carrots and sticks and, and verbal or whatever. And, and if you yell at one guy uh he he doubles down and plays harder and you yell at another guy and maybe he goes into a shell. But he he used a one size fits all approach. And I think the discussion of did he have to be that big of a jerk for them, you know, but they still have won if he was a nice guy. Um I think he just didn't have the in my view, um, you know he he always punched down, right? Scott Burrell, B.J. Armstrong, It was Kerr in the beginning. Um, you know, he didn't do that with Rodman. He didn't do that with, with some other big, be- you know, maybe Pippen in a little bit in the beginning, but I, I think he could have had a lighter touch with the teammates and maybe mm-hmm. was using that hard approach with himself and that would have made him uh, a little easier to deal with. Is that fair?
2: Yeah. I, I mean, look, he's, uh, he's far from a, uh perfect human. And I think he made a lot of bad decisions along the way. Some were covered in the film and some were suspiciously absent. I'm sure. Um, I think, I think most of us, especially if we're in one line of work the whole way, I think most of us, whether we admit it or not, and whether we need it or not, we have a number of governors over the course of our life that serve as our motivation to get out of bed. For instance, we have bosses, we have mortgages, we have uh, wives, uh, we have, you know, whatever, mouths to feed, uh, college to pay for, all these things. We have all these motivators, which I suppose they could be considered coaches in our life or or, uh, cattle prods or however you want to coach it. But what if we didn't have any of those things? What if you had all the money? and uh, there was never a chance you were going to lose your job because the whole thing is built around you. And you have people approaching you because they just want a piece of uh, your empire. And I I wonder, now clearly that would have all sorts of human effects on your personality and uh, how you are to deal with from what kind of husband you are to what kind of employee you are to uh, really what kind of jerk you are. And if we could leave that to the side and just simply say what motivates a person? What makes you strive for excellence? And by the way, the answer for most humans at a certain point is I don't know that I am motivated. I'm just kinda I'm just kinda trying to get to the weekend, guys, if that's all you so there's no innate strive for excellence for so many people. And so yes. It seems insane, especially if you put the lists all together within, you know, a month and you broadcast it nationally. It seems insane that from Le Bradford Smith to Magic Johnson to, to Isaiah Thomas to, you know, to B.J. Armstrong. To, you just start going to Reggie Miller and, to, you know, Scott Burrell, just all these things that he, uh, Byron Russell was this week's, I suppose, that he needed a reason to put them in his crosshairs is insane, right? I mean, there's really not even a debate probably. But I guess the flip side is that might be communicating a different way to make you think that I have to get up at 4 in the morning, even during the off season, to make sure nobody knocks me off my throne. Um, because I think a lot of great, great, great all-time best athletes, are comfortable with getting knocked off their throne because I've been there and I've done that and uh, they can't take that away from me and I have the trophy in my room. Whereas I think it takes a special kind of competitive cycle to say, you can have this thrown back when I say you can and when my career is over. And I don't know that we've experienced very many people like that because almost everybody has a foil. Almost everybody has a match. Uh, they run into a guy that can take them down and and what I think maybe, and again, I might be um, totally making excuses for the guy but I think without a rival and without like an accountability a checkpoint or a governor however you want to describe it without any of those things in your life I think you could make the case it's almost Uh, an accomplishment that he wasn't even crazier or hasn't been even crazier post-basketball because I do think this is what drives artists to early graves and and just all these types of things. So, so, I mean, there's a a human study in here, but, but to, to bring it all the way around to expect him to be able to relate to Scott Burrell or to expect (laughs) Scott Burrell to be able to relate to the most famous human being on the planet at a time where social media doesn't exist and he has really two places he can be on the basketball court entertaining us or in his hotel room locked up and there's not even an internet hardly there's definitely not an ipad there's no on demand you are watching silks in real time and sitting through the commercials guys so I think it's also difficult to watch that and remember what he was dealing with in 1990. And I think if you try to do it, maybe he comes off as a little less crazy relative to the other most famous people in the world at the time, like, you know, Michael Jackson. And <laughs> you know you right. start going down that list, Madonna. And so, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a fascinating study, but I don't think we'll ever see a, period in time like that again because now we kind of see what you're like as a human in real time. Uh and, and my example is Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant is probably one of the one hundred most famous humans in the world. And we know how insecure he is with Twitter and with you know just all of those things. And that did not exist back then.
1: I think uh you know your your answer when I asked you about the Mavs question, I loved your answer because I thought um, I don't I don't know that you intentionally meant to do it, but it did put Dirk's championship in perspective because you brought oh, yeah. out how hard it is to win one, and you have all these obstacles that are in your way, and you and you and you recite all those teams from the '90s that uh, you know their careers will unfortunately kind of vanish into into uh, you know won't be memory remembered that is as fondly because of not winning a title, but but two to your to your most his recent answer i thought john stockton said in essence what what you just brought up in terms of so many people in jordan's crosshairs if you remember uh stockton's reference to brian russell he said yeah. i have no doubt that jordan had any number of edges that he needed to sharpen whenever he yep. needed to do that he, he john stockton <laughs> right. basically brought up what you just did that that jordan had any any number he could go to that well any way that he deemed fit to sharpen an edge basically
2: yeah I you know what? A comparison was Mike Reiner for me, and I know that sounds really weird and 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 half the the audience may not even know who I'm talking about, but when I got to Dallas, I found it weird that the lion, Mike Reiner, cared what you know the the sheep thought uh, and and some of the guys in his crosshairs uh, outside the radio station we're really irrelevant humans uh in the in the industry you know and yeah. and it occurred to it occurred to me at the time like dude wh- what's the point of caring what this guy says or what this guy thinks you're mike reiner and 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 to mike reiner uh there's a whole new universe and i guess michael jordan's up there so you know it's 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 uh i i guess it's the human condition and how we're all a little insecure and uh, it would probably be easier if we'd all just admit it. And everybody's got their own little battleground and their own enemies. And I, and I suppose we all deal with them in a different way. And, and, uh, and, and full marks to the people that uh, when they die, everybody just says, man, what a great guy that was. And, and, and honestly, that's one of the things about Dirk you have to love is he navigated 20 years in the NBA, especially if people throw in sticks and stones at him, calling him names. Making fun of everything, and uh, and he still is going to go down as a legendary ambassador and genuine good dude who does not act like your average NBA megastar.
0: So he's not doing a uh, a podcast or a an Instagram live where he says, "Oh yeah, I cu- I could have played football, kind of like MGA played baseball." Um,
2: <laughs> huh? Yeah. To stick yeah. himself well, in
0: mean, the conversation, yeah.
2: That, well, and and uh, and you know, I, uh, you're obviously speaking of our friend King James, and and I I even think that's interesting, and, and this was a conversation I had with somebody a month ago. Is just the, you know, what what does your brain do differently? If you are cut from your high school team as a sophomore, and I know that story's inflated, but if you do have a humbling experience at the age of 15 or 16 relative to your sport, or you're on the cover of SI at 16, or 14, or whatever LeBron was the first time he was on the cover of SI. And give yourself
0: the nickname King.
2: Yeah. And then, you know, one has a dad who, you know, has a list of, uh, you know, here's how we're going to, you know, handle life as you're growing up. And then the other is, 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 is being adored by the entire basketball world as a can't miss future Jordan. I just have to think even those things move the furniture around in your brain enough that, you know, the final product is partly your responsibility, but... But maybe the final product is partly our responsibility for what we do to these guys and for what we do to athletes and and how we can't wait as a society to build somebody up to an impossible level so that we can invariably tear them down when we get tired of them.
0: Yeah, even the the scene really struck me when he was walking into the hotel after their last title and just the mob scene. Um, Yeah. I think all of us were like, wow, that'd be really cool, but not – Every day and every night and no. I think that that gets to your head at a level. Let me ask you this about to turn to the Mavs sure. page a little. Um, and I heard you talk about, you know, other sports documentaries you'd love to see in the 90s. Cowboys would be fun. Um, is there a Mavs documentary you'd like to see? And I want to take 2011 off the table because, you know, you wrote a book about it. And that's a yeah. story we've told a bunch. But is there a a story, a moment, uh, some drama, whatever in the Mavs world over the last, you know, uh, 40 years that, that you'd like a deep
2: dive in? Oh yeah. 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 I, I, I have one re- ready for you. I'm happy you asked this question. Uh, I think the best Mavs documentary, and I may have some of the details off, but I, I, I really do think it's the end of Don Nelson and Mark Cuban and, and how that related to the 2003 playoffs and the sit Dirk in the Spurs series, which of course has an intersection with Steve Kerr. And, uh, then basically goes all the way to, uh, goodbye to Steve Nash about 12 months later, which I believe many people will tell you was just kind of the same, the same friction between uh, Cuban and and Don Nelson. And I think they're both amazing contributors to this franchise. They both have stories that do not depend on the other uh, merit wise, but the, when Mark was trying to figure out how to do his thing, was the time where Don Nelson was just tired of suffering fools or breaking in new people or really just maybe the changes in society. So neither of them really had time for each other. And uh, and I may be uh, over overdoing that. And you guys were probably much closer to see the relationship. And maybe it's bigger in my head and not that great a documentary. But I, I think, uh, so what are we talking Um Oh, I don't know. The first signs of it, to me, were probably, you know, March, April of 2003 till, what, the end of the 2004 summer. uh, Because I think all of those things had a massive effect on what would follow, good and bad. And I often wonder, do the Mavs win one? Do they win two? with Steve Nash and Dirk playing their whole careers together, like Stockton and Malone, or do they win zero? I, I, I don't know the answer, but... I think it's a really interesting exercise.
0: You know, what's what's really interesting about that and, and taking the Nash thing off the table um is that Dirk has said about Nelly in particular um Nelly in 06 never we would never would have lost to Miami with Nelly as the coach cuz you know yeah. he was just outscoring them. Uh but he also said that we would never would have gotten past San Antonio uh earlier in that playoff series. So it's kind of this uh-huh. weird, you know, That's sliding doors thing where you know, it's a positive in some ways. And I think Avery developed uh, Dirk's back-to-the-basket game in a way that Nelly never would have. And so it's just this weird. And then you add the Steve Nash thing, and, you know, he becomes MVP the next two years, and then Dirk is the MVP in the third year. And what could they have done together? But but I agree, that's a really interesting drama.
2: Yeah, I, I don't know if that's the one you guys would pick, uh, and, and, and I don't know what you think of that, Mark. And I also, honestly... I, you guys uh, hopefully know my regard for, uh, for Dirk and, and everything about him. In the space of a documentary, I almost wonder if he's just too much of a gentleman to, to really open the books. Uh, be, you know, Because I think Michael had to be at peace with how bad it was going to make him look. Or... He could have done, you know, kind of an Isaiah or LeBron type deal where after he talks, you're like, you just said exactly what you thought we all wanted to hear rather than how you really feel. Come back when you want to say how you really feel. I don't know. I don't really, you know, Dirk will say a lot of things, but he's such a gentleman at all times. He was raised so right that I don't know that he would ever. I don't know that he would ever go full Michael Jordan in last dance. And I think that's what was the key to the documentary. I think if Michael was worried about how he came off in this documentary, it would not have been half as good. He's laughing at guys, dude. He's, yeah. he's literally laughing at Gary Payton. Yeah. The Gary Payton footage is unbelievable. Turk would not do that, and I love him for it, but I also realize there's a price to pay in uh, storytelling, I suppose.
1: Well, I know that uh, you have uh, your big show to prepare for, so as we wind it down, I-, I would like to go one other direction with you, Bob, here for just a few sure. minutes, and that is that uh, you know, whenever I'm on your guy's show, you guys are interviewing me and asking me for my thoughts on where we are in modern times and where we're headed with this uh, particular thing that we're dealing with right now and what's stopped down our professional sports life, so I would like to give you the floor uh, since since you're asking me how you, how I feel like where we're headed and what the time frame is and what's going to happen. I would like to turn that question on you and and, and not just as it relates to what your perspective is on how they can make this happen for the NBA, but, but we're soccer people, you and I. We've done many an FC Dallas yeah. game together. I know you were watching the Bundesliga and probably have some thoughts on what that looked like in reality after discussing in practicality the idea of empty stadiums, etc 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 and uh and then you had tom Gillardi on your show to to speak to it yesterday from the nhl perspective as well so i I would think you have uh some significant thoughts on where we are and where we're headed and what that's going to look like
2: well there's no question i uh have plenty of thoughts on on uh, this very unique time in in our sports life um you know I, i i think The best road back to replicating what we had before is we got to walk before we can run. We got to crawl before we can walk. And I think the key is to have a reasonable threshold where we can continue sports. Um, You know, I'm certainly not a scientist. Please don't uh, confuse me with one. But I am still under the impression that the professional adult male uh, active athlete, is amongst the least vulnerable uh to the coronavirus okay uh if if i am even close to correct on that um then i think a version of crawling is to uh get these games going again in empty situations or or virtually empty situations and back into our homes and that sort of gets the wheel turning that keeps us all suspended. These games don't happen. These teams don't fly across the world for our entertainment on admiration or love. They do it on money. And uh, I, I don't want to be one of those people that sounds like, uh, you know, public health be darned. Uh, we got to get our money going again. I'm not that guy at all. In fact, uh, if you know me, you know, I'm probably way closer to the opposite of that. And I do know that the next step in this somewhere this summer will be to politicize this because we as a society are not happy until we've politicized everything. Mm -hmm. And therefore there, there will be a line, uh, you wait, especially in an election year, there will be a line where if you support the return of sports uh, you're on this side. And if you support the uh, society's health and well-being, you're on this side. And I don't think you'll get to straddle it. Like I, legitimately feel in my heart so I'm thinking that will be next partly because uh, of of just politics and partly because uh, politicians, uh, really stop at nothing to win elections. And, uh, that probably is, 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 uh, free of uh, political affiliation. That's just how they're wired is to, uh, have no holds barred. So, you know, I, I think step one is let's get going again. Let's have a reasonable threshold of, uh, of illness where we're like, okay, we don't want this, but if it's less than say 5% of the participants that are, uh, that are ill and have to be quarantined or have to be taken out of the sport. I don't love it. I certainly don't love the uh, the horrible scenario uh, that was painted for me recently of, okay, we're in the NBA Finals. It's uh, the day before game one, and LeBron James has coronavirus. He needs a two-week uh, quarantine, and, uh, and what's your move, Commissioner Bob? Uh, Do we play on without uh, the key figure that people would even tune in to watch and, and, and the competitive balance of that series would swing with this decision? Do we delay it for two weeks? That sounds insane. And where's the threshold of drawing the line on what player is important enough to just hold everything? I mean, I think you almost have to figure out, a hybrid, and and I almost said World War II rules, but World War II was not governed by television money. So this is literally unprecedented, guys. So um, I think part of this plan is to hope for the best because that's all I can say with certainty is this could go wrong. But then after that, once... Once we feel that the cities are now uh, reasonably okay to at least function with great caution and great responsibility, then I think the empty venue uh, games will be step one. And then we kind of let that sit for a month, maybe. And then, uh, you know, we go to the next step, which is, all right, we think we can put 30% Thirty percent of fans. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what happens after that. But I do know if we don't get to that step, man, there are going to be bankrupt franchises in yeah. every sport. Mm-hmm. In every sport, the MLS will fold. Uh, and and you know, I'll go on, but they won't. Uh, and and that's just that's just the tip of the iceberg. And these small market teams in these other sports. I mean, I I think. From someone who loves sports and loves the way it always has been, and and, and loves what lies ahead, I do feel very strongly that uh, July first has to be a time where our leagues across the globe are all pretty much back, at least playing on our televisions. And if we can get that, now we're back and we're we're off and running. But if, if but if the if the public tolerance says. The first time somebody they've heard of gets sick, that we got to pull the plug and we got to go back to March 13th and start all over again. Man, <laughs> I don't know what that means, but it, it, it is not good. So I'll just leave that at that. Well, Bob, you, uh, you think
1: all of this stuff at a much higher level than just about anybody I've ever talked to, and I love that. Your insight is incredible, and we, uh, we just can't thank you enough for joining 77 Minutes in Heaven today. It's been fantastic
2: it was a pleasure and, and hopefully i kept it below 77 guys thanks so much you you, you kept it on, on a double number 44 you did great <laughs> perfect
0: and now mark uh we had a great discussion with uh the sterminator sturm center bob sturm mm-hmm. the athletics Zone, bob sturm and the the tickets owned bob sturm from three to seven and uh we have now consumed all of the last dance i have to tell you watching it um i i never felt drag at all. I mean, it was just, the, an episode would end and I'd be like, oh, wow, already? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you'd have to watch the the next one immediately. Uh, you have to watch it Sunday night, I, you know, because you want to get Twitter reaction, you want to yeah. watch. <laughs>
1: when you want to watch sport, they're going to so- talk about on Sports Center Absolutely. after the fact and see yeah. what a plain kitchen that Bob Costas has. I know. It's the <laughs> yes, other- <laughs> of course. <laughs> very white. <laughs> just it's a very, uh, just normal guy kitchen. It wasn't very extravagant at all.
0: Um, but, uh, you know, we, we talked with Bob a lot about some some different things that, that uh, came to mind from the series as a whole. One one of the things that, that has come up, um, and, and this is, I think, somebody who grew up in Houston, it's a little bit of a craw on my side, um, is talking about whether they could have won, you know, eight or nine or ten of these things. Two different things. W- what you think would have happened in 94, 95, and also what you think would have happened in... 99. Let me give you my input real quick mm-hmm. on the 99 thing. I think it's a non-starter because I think if you remember Pippen had just finished his seven year, $18 million total contract deal at that point. right? And he then signed a uh, six year, $72 million deal, which was his last contract uh, to sign and trade to the Rockets. Mm-hmm. And then eventually went to the, the Blazers. Um, I don't think he would have come back for one year, even at a $15 million deal or $20 million deal. He was ready to get paid big money, and I think it would have been very, very difficult to get him back. And remember
1: remember one, of the, one of the more famous uh, interview soundbite clips I thought, one of the more notable soundbite clips I thought from the doc was um, when they were talking to Pippen in maybe episode one or two about his being underpaid, and he he's sitting up there on the podium saying, my time will come. Yeah. My and, time and will come.
0: And to say, oh, why can't he sign for 15-1? Well, we know from injuries and just whatever, maybe his play would have deteriorated. You just, you're just you not leaving that money on the table, especially when you haven't really gotten your big payday yet. Correct. So I think it's a non-starter that, you know, listen, they, they wanted to fill back, but they wanted to fill back in a rebuild. Uh, that I just don't think that would have happened. And a lot of people say, well, you would have had a long layoff and the shorter season would have helped. I think a shorter season hurts an old team, especially when you're playing, remember, four games and five nights back-to-back-to-backs, things like that. Uh, and then the Spurs were a really good team. Mm-hmm. So uh, although they probably would have gotten the East through the East pretty easily as the eighth seed Knicks made it through, I think that would have been tough. And then on the 94-95, and I admit bias in this, but uh, Native you remember of Houston,
1: that? Native of Houston, Brian DeMaris. Yes.
0: Um, full-fledged MFFL now. I've, I've switched my allegiance to the – uh, chagrin of of my family, but
1: um, <laughs> they do realize that you worked for the team for yes. several years. So yeah, <laughs> yes, they paid they
0: paid for my allegiance. But um, the '94 Bulls team wasn't that great. I mean, they lost Horace Grant mm-hmm. in the off season before then. Horace signed his big deal with Orlando. was actually, I think, the third highest player in the NBA at that point. Um, and so, you know, I think they got Ron Harper because of uh, in Maybe Kerr at that point I think came in, um, but you know they weren't that great, and they, uh, but they did have the good season. Pippen stepped up, and then the next year uh,
1: they actually were worse than they were the year before. Yeah, they were thirty-four and thirty-one. I think whenever Jordan came back there at the games. right, yeah,
0: and, and even with the legs that Michael didn't have, you know, uh, Orlando was a really good team. They, they, plus, you have to remember that Elizawon was an almost impossible matchup for the Bulls. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the 94 season, he Duncan won the MVP, and he actually schooled him in the Western yep. Conference. Uh, Robinson, finals. David Robinson. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're all good. Robinson, uh, he absolutely just made him look silly. Yes. And then in 95, they got Drexler midseason in the trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were a much better team, even than they were in the championship team from 94. Um, I think at least one of those, the Rockets would have won.
1: Well, some thoughts on what you had to say. Number one, I agree with you. First off, you said that one of the great things about the documentary was there was no drag. And and I agree with that. Um, I'm sad it's ended. It was like Sundays at my house were... It's 4 o'clock, man. I'm four hours away. Ooh, 5 o'clock. Yep. Five hour, oh, it's 6 o'clock. Hey, they're replaying last week's episodes right now. I might like watch those while I'm making dinner to get ready for the Braille episodes at 8 o'clock. So no drag. It was uh, phenomenal, incredible stuff. And I enjoyed every second of it. And it was... Uh, you know really life uh, giving and sustaining during this uh this time that we're experiencing right now um as far as your thoughts on on what could they have done outside of the six titles uh, 1998, 99. Even if Pippen, even if you want to take that out of the equation and say they could have talked him into coming back, um, that was a brutally difficult year. And so I don't think an old team that had just been through what they'd been through and then try to start up again and play. I mean, as you mentioned, four games and five nights. But the reality was, Brian, there were teams that you're playing five games and six nights. Wow, it I was remember that. you were play. You would play a back to back to back and an off night and then a back to back. And as a matter of fact, the same thing happened. For pretty much every team, had to do it one time. because that season
0: didn't end, didn't yeah. start till well
1: February. towards the end
0: of January or February. Was, Dirk, Dirk's
1: first game was February fifth, nineteen ninety nine, the first game of his NBA career. Because the, the twenty twelve lockout
0: season. started Christmas, so it wasn't as bad scheduling. They played sixty six games yeah. or something like that. Yeah, this was when, a fifty game season when, when the NBA locked out
1: after the Mavs won the title. Brian, that season started at Christmas and they played sixty six games and they were able to finish it up like around the. 28th, 29th, 30th of April, basically the end of April. That year was a 50 game lockout or 50 game season after a lockout, and it started at the beginning of February and finished in the first week of May, and then you started your playoffs. So, yeah, I, I, I don't think.
0: Uh, Plus, Rodman, you know, Rodman had a stint with the Lakers, uh, which was a 35 game disaster. And then obviously, we talked about the next year after an 11 month yeah. layoff, what he did with the Mavs. Um, he was. You know, as we saw in the last dance, you know, going to the WWE uh, with with your friend Bischoff in there, Bischoff was in. He was in, (laughs) um, not out. (laughs) That uh, he was getting to the point where he was going to get out of control.
1: Yes, I mean, he took a vacation to Vegas. You know, so (laughs) just uh, no, the finals, (laughs) a vacation during the season to Vegas. And then uh, disappeared during the finals to go be part of WCW Monday Nitro and join the NWO with Hulk Hogan or Hollywood Hogan at the time, of course. But, but so, uh, look, no chance to me in ninety nine, uh, and mainly the lockout season is is what the what the story is there and uh, and i'm not saying this because i'm sitting here with like a guy who you know listened to every rockets game broadcast by gene peterson when he was growing up um i i think that so
0: just made every bad call <laughs> that that didn't occur
1: i think that uh yeah elijah Wan, you're right i mean one of the and and much the way that jordan said his motivation was malone winning mvp going into the first of the bulls jazz finals in 1997 uh, it's a it's a well known story that Elijah Wan stood there and saw David Robinson get the MVP before Game One of the Spurs-Rockets 1994 Western Conference Finals, and and Olajuwon absolutely schooled him. And the amazing thing about that series is, by the way, that after Houston won the first two games at the Alamo Dome and it looked like San Antonio was dead in the water, San Antonio went to the Summit and won the first two games there. That game that series ended up, I think, being six games, but the road team won the first five games of the series before Houston won game six on their home floor and wrapped it up and went on to the finals. So that was... Uh, yeah, that was a that was an incredible series, but the that was the height of Hakeem's, um, you know, being ready to win a championship and and right the wrong from from not winning a, a title at the college level and finally break through. Uh, and and Houston had a great formula as a team. Um, You know, I mean, what a battle it was against the Knicks in 94. And then, you know, what would be interesting to know and and look back from a Rocket perspective is in 95, if Nick Anderson doesn't spit the bid at the end of game one and Orlando goes up 1-0, how does that series, you know, the year where Rudy Tomjanovich said, never underestimate the heart of the champion. And they
0: end up sweeping the magic.
1: Yeah, they ended up sweeping the magic when Orlando had game one and then blew it in spectacular fashion with missed free throws and, and Kenny Smith forced overtime. And, and Houston, I mean, Houston crushed them, their spirit. You know, that crushed Orlando's spirit in game one of that series. But but I, no, look, man, I, I don't have any uh, uh, and I think disillusions that the Bulls were going to be like eight or nine-time winners. And they, I think there's something to, to yeah.
0: seeing what Jordan was like after that third title. Yeah. Um, The third
1: third title of the first three pit. Right. Yeah, against Phoenix, yeah.
0: How exhausted he was. Yeah. And then I think there is some psychological aspect to, you know, knowing that they had called it the last dance. You know, uh, uh, Jackson had it on the playbook, you know, in training camp of that year Mm -hmm. in 97, 98. There's some psychological aspect of, okay, one you know as tough and as drama filled, this is the last time we're doing this. So this gives us the extra impetus to go through it. Uh, if they didn't have that, you know, maybe they just, if you know, you have 10 miles to run, it's a lot harder when you know you have five miles to run.
1: Yep. Yeah. No understood. Understood for sure. So I, I think, uh, you brought up some great points, um, and and I'm in agreement with you on, on that aspect of it. And that's a really good. I'm glad you said that because I wanted to to make that point as well. That uh, as it relates to Chicago and Houston and where Jordan and Olajuwon possibly could have intersected in that '93 '94 season, it looked like that, that Bulls group was was out of gas and needed, you know, Jordan needed what his baseball dalliance or you know whatever it was that he needed. It needed to be away from basketball at that point for a period of
0: time. And I think, uh, you know, the the Rockets in 96 lost to the, the Sonics in a really, really tough series and the Sonics ended up going to the finals that year. Um, What is your thought on nineties basketball? Because I think I do subscribe to the theory that the eighties were tougher because of Detroit, Philly, Boston, LA, and if Jordan had played in that era, uh, you know, at the age he was in the nineties, it would have been harder for him to get those six. Uh, He, he, you know, the East wasn't easy with the Knicks and Indiana. um, But his finals matchups weren't tough. I think the Suns were probably maybe his hardest one. You know, those jazz were close series, but um, you know, I, I, I think, I don't know. It seems to me the level of competition wasn't as difficult in the '90s as it was in the '80s, and maybe even to extent those Lakers teams or the Warriors teams of, of you know last few years. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, my thoughts are that this documentary, to be quite honest with you, Brian, really reinforced to me. I thought that that I walked away from it with a much greater appreciation and and rem- remembrance of how good those teams were. Um, you know, Charles Barkley kept from a title because of Jordan's sons in 1993. And I thought Barkley's interview after that episode of The Last Dance was very, very uh, enlightening in terms of I didn't have my team ready to play and I didn't have myself ready to play for the spotlight of Game 1 of the finals. And I regret it to this day and things could have turned out differently if we had played a better game in Game 1 because everything else in the series was competitive. So I walk away from it thinking that, um, you know, the Barkley – Kevin Johnson era of the Suns, I think, are very underappreciated. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm biased because I work with Derek Harper and know how close uh, they were to a title. But I think that even though they played an ugly style, uh, the Knicks teams of that era with Patrick Ewing as the basis of it. But John Starks was a hell of a player. And so I think those teams are very, very underappreciated.
0: And they were Starks three pointer away from winning, you know, ninety four in Game Six against Houston. Yeah, yeah.
1: and as uh, you know, as we saw the ninety eight Eastern Eastern Conference Finals between the Pacers and and the Bulls. I mean, Reggie Miller's uh, one of my favorite buzzer beaters ever. The Reggie Miller shot on Memorial Day in Game Four that made that series two two. Um, you know, I I think those teams were so good and were a great matchup. You know, Reggie broke it down the other night, and even uh, Michael admitted, you know, that that those the Pacers deep. had components that made them a very very difficult. Yeah, they were the tough, tough post
0: Pistons yeah. toughest test.
1: Um, you know, and and those Utah teams. I mean, dude, Stockton and Malone. I mean, Malone is the second leading scorer in the history of the NBA, and and Stockton is the number one assist guy, and so those two are incredible players and i think that those were were really hard-fought series uh you know the flu game is is obviously a big story in 97 and then um, pizza game yeah the, yeah the pizza I, game I the bad the pizza. pizza game <laughs> yeah i ate the pizza the whole pizza um, By the then, way, and, then, you and see then the last the, uh, few seconds. I'm sorry, the last few seconds of of what Jordan was able to do in Game Six in '98, and and how it looked like Utah was about to force a Game Seven, and then it fell apart. It got away from them in the span of 40 seconds at the very end. So, uh, I, th- those teams were all so good and so very, very close. And and you know maybe it was uh, their own. They, they, they just, they, they stumbled a little bit too much on the biggest stage, those teams or, or Jordan's, uh, you know, all of those. Well, things it's like that Jordan's Jordan did play, for his edge, you know,
0: getting, uh, you know, going to, uh, Malone and that play where he stole the ball, yeah. right. Going off of Havlicek, uh, Havlicek, uh, Hornacek yeah. and, and leaving him alone. Knowing well, you that, thought
1: steal Havlicek. Yeah, yeah. It's a common mistake. Yeah. Havlicek steals it. Uh, so, yeah. He stole the ball.
0: um, <laughs> But knowing that that's the play, and everybody knew that was going to be the play. You're going to yeah. give it to Malone. Getting that, it, it, Utah didn't choke. MJ just, basketball IQ-wise, made a better play.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, you know again, to, as, as I always will try to do, at some point it's going to circle back to the Mavs, is that's what made the Mavs of 2011 so good. Uh, uh, craftsmanship. Jordan used the word craftsmanship at the end of the last episode talking about you know how he was so physically dominant when he came into the league and then was still winning titles even though there may have been you know not the quite the level of, of obviously not the level of freshness but not the level of physical dominance in, in 1998 but craftsmanship and being, in, you know, mentally, you know, his IQ, at, his basketball IQ at such a high level that that still made him uh, a great player able to do those things. And that was, you know, such a great component, I thought, of the Mavs team in 2011 was basically craftsmanship of, of so many skilled veterans who, even though they were on the downside of their careers from a physical standpoint, still were mentally and basketball IQ wise, extraordinary players.
0: You know, it's it's uh, it's funny because, you know, the takeaways from this are, are many from this series. Um, but I thought you have an interesting take being, you know, I grew up a Rockets fan. And so I obviously, the Rockets were really good and kind of in the mix during the whole 90s. Um, as a Mavs fan, it was a little bit of a different feeling yeah. watching this. What, well, what are your takeaways from that?
1: My, my takeaway was, it was, you know, and I brought it up with, with Bob on our interview a little bit, how it was kind of sad that, I mean, the Mavs, not that I, you know, not that I expected them to have any sort of big part of the documentary, but heck, they didn't even, like, recognize the the 19-point blown fourth-quarter lead game whenever said Sabalos forced overtime and the Mavs won uh, in March of 1998 of the last dance season. The and by documentary the way,
0: crew probably didn't even come to down to reunion <laughs> thinking this is too <laughs> insignificant.
1: And then the Bulls won 13 in a row after that, by the way, so that was, uh, that was kind of an important game, but... Uh, perhaps in getting getting you know their edge sharpened to realize, hey man, we got to take this stuff seriously as we get ready for the playoffs. Maybe that was the one last uh, poke in the eye that they needed to to get them get them focused on the one month ramp up to the playoffs because that's basically about how far out it was. But in but but yeah, the fact that the Mavs the the Mavs descendancy coincided with Jordan's ascendancy to global icon status and by far the most important pivotal fulcrum of the NBA. Uh, And then at the same point in time, you know, that the Mavs had just fallen into the abyss. Uh, From 1990 to 93, I I wanted to bring these stats up with Bob, but we just didn't have the time to do it. Uh, The first Jordan Bulls era three-peat, the Bulls went 185 and 61. In that same three year stretch, the Mavs had the worst record in the league at 61 and 185. Exactly inverted.
0: So take the other. greatest team of the 90s <laughs> and then basically the opposite of that.
1: Yeah, the opposite of that is what Dallas was in the first three years of the 90s. Uh, and then in the second Bulls three, Pete, 95 to 98, when Chicago went 203 and 43, Brian, winning 82.5% of their games. The Warriors of 2014 to 17 are the only three year period better in NBA history when they won 207 and lost 39. But when the Bulls in 95 to 98 were going 203 and 43, the Mavs were 70 and 176, which was winning 28.5% of their games. Only the three first years of the expansion, Vancouver Grizzlies and Toronto Raptors were worse, and surprisingly, the Denver Nuggets actually were a couple of games worse in that three-year stretch than the Mavs were. At least the Mavs, uh, you know, did have a year of the three Jays in there where things looked like they were heading on the upswing before when Mata came that, back. Yeah, before that era fell apart. Um, even Jordan's career games with Chicago against Dallas really kind of go down as afterthoughts. Uh, you know, no, no real signature performances. Uh, Jordan against Dallas in 21 games with the Bulls, went 17-4, and won a couple of games at the beginning, Brian, and then in strange in a strange scheduling sequence, Dallas played Chicago twice at the very end of the 86-87 season and then had games, there were two games against them early in the 87-88 season, early in that season. So Jordan lost to the Mavs three times in the calendar year, 1987, and then proceeded to win uh, his next 14 games he played against Dallas before losing the last regular season game he played against the Mavs with Chicago in that, in that game where they blew it in March of 1998 at Reunion Arena. Um, uh, averaged 27 in his career against Dallas, which was a low number. I mean, there's just a handful of teams. Uh, the Clippers, the expansion teams I just noticed, noted, and obviously against Chicago when he played with the Wizards. Uh, so, so one of his lowest scoring averages was against Dallas, and probably because, there quite honestly, Brian were a lot of blowouts, and he probably wasn't having to play big minutes right. and and put up big numbers um, uh, for a guy who scored a hundred and who had a hundred and seventy three career games of forty plus points. Brian second of all time to Wilt Chamberlain. He only had three of those games against Dallas. Yeah, he had forty three in a game at Reunion on April seventh, nineteen ninety. So that was that was uh that was still another year where they lost to the Pistons in the playoffs. Right. But on April 7th, 1990, he had 43 in a game that was won by John Paxson on a three-pointer at the buzzer, 95-94. That was the
0: end of the Mavs really Last good team yeah, you know, yeah. before they got, the drought.
1: Yep. They got bounced by Portland in the playoffs in the first round. They got swept, as a matter of fact, by the, the Blazers who went on to the finals and lost to the Pistons that year. And then uh, Jordan had a couple of 41-point games against the Mavs while playing in Chicago. One of those includes the infamous Bubba Wells game in December of 1997 when Jordan scored 41 points going 16 of 29 from the floor 16 of 28 on twos. I thought
2: right, you would like that. <laughs>
1: 0 for one on threes. <laughs> Obviously, uh, that was the game though when Nelly thought uh, that the five and 23 Mavs going into this game really had to trick things up. So he would use Bubba Wells strategically to do a hack a shack on Dennis Rodman. And he brought Bubba Wells in in the last two minutes of the first quarter and intentionally fouled Rodman three times. And Rodman went. Uh, four for six on those free throws, and then and still a close game late in the third quarter, Nellie would do the same thing and bring Bubba Wells in and fouled Rodman three times in about a minute, and Rodman went five of six on those free throws, and so Bubba Wells still holds the distinction as the player to foul out in the shortest amount of time in NBA history, two minutes and 43 seconds. Wow. Yeah, all because of... Uh, Nelly's uh Rodman. Yeah, wild strategy that uh did not pay off as the Bulls won that game. Not that it was a blowout, but uh they did just enough. They they exerted the minimum amount of effort possible that they needed to in the midst of their final uh season of the repeat three peat, the minimum amount of effort possible to dispatch of a team that was five and twenty-five.
0: Well, I think people have to remember uh and it's what's amazing about MJ watching this as opposed to the uh load management era that we're in now is that he did play all eighty two games. Uh, And he played them hard. I mean,
1: heavy minutes too, man. You
0: have to understand that in a, and you know this because you travel every single game with the team. um, There are just nights where if it's a Monday night in January and you're playing a lot of games that month and you're in Detroit, you just don't, you're not feeling it. And you may go in and it's the biggest game if you're Jordan for that team that you're playing Mm -hmm. in their barn. But for you, it's just like, ugh. And so, yeah, you just, you may just kind of walk through a game and score 21 points, mm-hmm. which is low for him. Yeah. And Dallas, frankly, in the 90s, was that place.
1: Yep, yep. But the amazing thing about it is, and I think that uh, even though this didn't come to light as much for Jordan and this doc, but you know he's kind of always was famous for saying that I may take the floor some night, and it might be the first night that somebody's ever gotten a chance to see me play. And so I'm going to keep that in mind when I go out there and play. And so that's, you know, not he played – the games he was, you know, he played every game. Uh, there wasn't load management. I mean, if he missed games, it's because he was legit hurt. He played heavy minutes. He played very, very well in a lot of those games. So, yeah, he just.
0: Uh, well, Mark, as as you know, as the only one of us here that's in show business, you know, me <laughs> being a stand-up comedian. <laughs> I can tell you that when I do like a, a weekend set where I have eight shows over a weekend, you know that sixth show you may be tired, but and you're doing the same set you've always done, but that audience hadn't seen you. So
1: <laughs>
0: MJ and I have that in common. You guys, we, we do, bring man. it every time. You,
1: guys, <laughs> you relate to each other, man. Yeah.
0: <laughs> we're not just yeah. calling games. We we're crafting material. And, it's all about craftsmanship and for America. you guys, man,
1: for sure. No, it was. I got to tell you, man. I just I, I, I've enjoyed how much we've had a chance to talk about it, um,
0: and, I'd, and I'd enjoyed, you know, uh, Bob talking about. You know, now we're kind of thinking, oh gosh, what do we want these deep dives in? And I thought his answer about you know the the Nelly Cuban rift was was really interesting because you know we've done shows on Moody Madness and on Rodman and on 2011. And I didn't even think about that as a topic, but not that I think that would ever happen, but, but, you know, it's just interesting. Yeah. There's never going to be a document. Even in our own little (laughs) niche world about the Mavs, there are some interesting stories.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that's a great question that you asked. Um, I don't know if I had to go back. I mean,
0: you've um, got Roy Tarpley. You've got the beginning of
1: the. I think the, the franchise Roy Tarpley, in itself. I think, I think Roy Tarpley would make me too would frustrate me too sure. much. Yeah, I think I don't think I would want a documentary on that because I think it would frustrate me. I think because of my uh, endearing respect, I'll always have for Mister C. Uh, You know, I've gotten to know Rick Sund over the years and Norm Sanju and both of those guys and obviously grew up admiring them and then have gotten to have somewhat of a professional relationship with both of them and hold them in the highest regard. Um, You know, and I know, you know, you and I were talking off air, you know, the the, what Sanju and, and Don Carter did to get the Mavs here in 1980, whenever Sanju basically had the Buffalo Braves coming here in 1978 and then... There's this crazy story of how the Celtics owners and the Buffalo Braves owners swapped ownership because... Crazy. And then, they just yeah,
0: traded franchises. They, they
1: traded each other their teams. They traded each other their shares in their teams. And John Y. Brown ends up being the owner of the Celtics. And Irv Levin moves from being the owner of the Celtics to the owner of the Buffalo Braves and then moved the team to San Diego because he wanted it to be closer to his movie studio that he had in Southern California. And so that whole deal... So, so, the thing was, in 1978, the story is that that Norm had a, and a, Sanju had an agreement in principle that was going to be announced that the Buffalo Braves were going to leave Buffalo and come and play as the Dallas Express starting in 1978. And the deal was done. Now, and now then, did and that Buffalo have anything
0: to do with the impetus for reunion getting built? So, if that deal wasn't done, maybe reunion doesn't get built?
1: You know what? I'm not sure on that part of it. Because yeah. if
0: that's the case, then. Even though it fell through, well, it was already approved getting built. You don't get the other, fran- you don't get the franchise in 81 without reunion.
1: Yeah. yeah. And the thing about it is, is that. Even the-
0: though WCT was the primary tenant,
1: but. The, uh, you know a lot of investors backed out. And so, I mean, it was really Norm's willingness to see it through. So, so, so the Buffalo thing fell apart in 78 and then it was Norm's willingness to see it through. And Don Carter's willingness to see it through because some, there were some stipulations that the NBA put in the deal at the last minute to approve an expansion franchise. And so some guys got cold feet that were going to be investors in the Mavericks. And, and, and so, Don Carter
0: was not a part of that group?
1: He was a part of that group, but then... But he wasn't the, the major part of that group. No, he he. but the people that were part of that group with him all of a sudden was like, Drop oh, I head. don't like these new stipulations to the deal. And then, so it's like a lot of the backing that Carter had arranged... Kind of falls off the map at that point, but but you know Don Carter saw it out along with Norm and those guys were able to craft a plan and basically say you know we're going to do this and we're going to take the risk and we're going to bite the bullet and you know we're we're going to find a way to get the money to get this started that we just lost from other investors backing out at the last minute. We're going to figure out a way to do this, and they did. And and so the uh, owner of the was,
0: Celtics yeah. decided, no, no, thanks. Yeah. Even this is right before Bird. Yeah, this is nice. a
1: year before Bird.
0: Yep. Uh, says, no, I want the Buffalo team. Mm-hmm. Then three years later, sells that to Donald Sterling. Yeah. And then in the San Diego, then moves in. Wow, Wow. I think he wants that one
1: back. <laughs> well, he wanted, just, he wanted to be out in California. And so, yeah, wow. he sold the San Diego Clippers to Donald Sterling. In 1981, uh, for 13 million dollars, I believe is what it was. We looked up beforehand. So yeah, it's so to me, it's like how the Mavericks got here. I guess uh, the historian in me just just revisiting that part of it because now it's a story that is you know it's it's not really told very much that you know we thought we were getting a team and then it fell apart and then two years later. We were, thought we were getting a team, and it almost fell apart again for different reasons. And so that would probably be, to me, the the interesting Mavs history documentary to to go all the way back to that time.
0: I think I want to see like the uh, the story of the super fans from the beginning of the Cuban era, like Boogie Bob and Thunderman.
1: <laughs>
0: Maybe like a deep dive into all the crazy fans that were, you know, each had their moment in the sun. Well, Mark energized
1: those guys. I mean, that's, you know, look, one of the most endearing things. Kind of a where are they now? <laughs> one of the most endearing things and one of the most important things Mark did was, remember when we had Mark Stein on and he just, you know, it, it was it was not the way business normally was done that when, you know, you had to wait for your ownership transfer to be approved. Right. But in Cuban's case, when he bought the team from Ross Perot Jr., it's like, Free drinks at the Stars Club after every game. (laughs) We're announcing this on January 4th, and it may be 90 days before it gets approved, but I'm starting to run the team, and we're going to start doing things my way right now. And that meant free drinks at the Stars Club after the game and getting you know and latching on to the few crazy fans we do have let's let's celebrate them and let's try to create more crazy fans and paint your face and we'll let you in for free let's
0: play a gong every time long juju (laughs) checks in i mean
1: there was just some wild times at the beginning of his of his ownership (laughs) but it was all about injecting energy into the franchise and it did and and you know there's 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 so many things that happened uh, you know along the way that's led the Mavs to where they are and so many forgotten stories that it would be fun. I thought that was a great question you asked Bob. There there is you know and 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 obviously I, I tend to gravitate towards the stories that had the happy endings. He gravitated towards the story that didn't have the happy ending. It's more but, drama, sure. But there's but there's a lot of drama there for sure. No and,
0: and another thing, you know, you mentioned all the '90s kind of futility for the Mavs being the worst team of the '90s in the NBA, maybe in all sports, I believe. Um, that is what is so great about the Luca KP Mavs is that, you know, even after Dirk, we haven't gone, you know, we went through three years of no playoffs and hopefully that breaks when play resumes now, but uh, you know, we're not having to go through, you know, what the Kings have gone through in terms of futility in some other yeah. franchises.
1: Yeah. The Timberwolves had a 13 year playoff drought and then they got in and then they got, then they've been right back into futility after the that. suns. Yeah. Plenty of teams. Yeah. Uh, the Kings are on a 13 year drought right now. If you were going to do a nineties Mavs documentary, I mean, clearly to me, it's like, why didn't the three J's work? That would be the one that you would want to do. Cause there isn't really another story. Kind of a
0: Tony Braxton, deep dive. <laughs>
1: What role did she play in that? If in fact she did play. Now
0: role I know you asked that. Jay Kidd about that during your Mavericks re but it didn't make the final cut, so
1: <laughs> it ended up on the cutting room floor could for you, some could reason. Could you post that on your Twitter? <laughs> Let me see if I could find the. Uh, I'll, I'll call up Dave Caney and see if we can get that okay. footage. Yeah. <laughs>
0: well, let's do talk about uh, you know where we are now.
1: Yeah, you did mention us getting started back up again, and so uh, I, I do want to revisit that. Yes. Yeah.
0: So you know, it it looks like momentum is just slowly but surely dripping in that
1: direction. I mean, it's like a lava flow. It's not fast. Right. I mean, but it is moving. <laughs> and and
0: I, I don't know of any, other than some Larry Nance comments uh, Monday, uh, anybody really that's against the NBA returning to play. It seems like the owners are all for it. Mark, I think, is for it, but wants to do it in the right way. Um, you know, the, the major players of Chris Paul and LeBron and those guys want to do it.
1: Yeah, they had their their phone call last week.
0: Yeah. Um, the I think you said, how many teams now have facilities open?
1: so the latest count that I saw on Sunday night or Monday, and this includes in California, you know where Gavin Newsom obviously has you know been has been much slower and and uh, what is it Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles? Yes. I mean you know things are. Much, much slower to open up out there relative to some other parts of the country. The Lakers and Clippers, I mean, they've signed off on the Lakers and Clippers. Yeah, they gave them an exemption. Yeah, to have the the very, very extremely limited use of the practice facilities that the NBA is allowing right now. So the Count Sunday night was adding in the Clippers and sixteen of thirty teams at that point have had this uh super super soft reopening and the Mavericks of their still practice are not facilities. Open. Yeah, they're the they're in the fourteen. And because the, the, you
0: know, it's, it's still the same rules we talked about last time. Uh, It's pretty restrictive. Uh, Luca and KP are still overseas. Mm -hmm. Um, But silver has put a June 15th kind of date on terms of making a, a firm decision. And I guess I'm at the point where I'd be surprised if we didn't see basketball in a bubble environment without fans in July.
1: Yes, and oh, speaking of bubble environment, did you happen to notice? I think uh, I don't know where this kind of got off the ground yesterday, but I noticed that they're shifting terminology there to campus environment. Okay, yeah, I, I did. Uh, I did see that come up yesterday. That uh, maybe maybe that uh, is a more um, it's less
0: restrictive to the players yeah. in terms of terminology. Thank you very
1: much. That's they t- won't have to sit in their hotel room. They can be in a. Resort-style place and move around freely. So I think that, yeah, that's where it stands. Negotiations seem to be that Orlando, and and this is what I read yesterday, uh, but again, it's, it's all speculative at this point. But Orlando is sort of the leader in that regard, with Vegas second. But to me, it almost makes sense. Why wouldn't you just go ahead and use both of them, unless there's some unless there's some impediment to it that we're not aware of, which is doing a west be, and east kind of thing. Yeah, well, I mean that that to me makes the most sense. And I think it's
0: because of this whole open question about what you're going to do with the regular season, with with teams having you know between uh, sixteen and you know twenty games to play. Yeah. Um, how do you handle that? Because there are teams like Atlanta, the Warriors, uh, the Cavaliers. Do they have to ramp up to basically play meaningless games? But those meaningless games could be against playoff teams that are positioning. Yeah. So the question is, how many games do you play? And it is, you know, I think the CBA is going to be, and the NBA has, has with the Players Association has extended their ability to renegotiate the CBA because I think under the current terms. Every game canceled is less money to the players. And so the players are going to prop- would say, well, then we'll play to get the money, even though there's risk involved. And maybe we don't want to cancel games if that's less money in our pocket.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is, I, and I don't know how this works, but how many, you know, what benefit is it to the teams, even if you're not in the playoff picture, what benefit is it financially for the teams that your local television partner gets to air eight games? At the end, or something like injury, that. Yeah. yeah. What What is it? You know. What What will it matter for uh, for uh, Fox Sports Ohio to get to air those eight Cleveland Cavalier games, even though there would be you know, it it, it seems kind of like really difficult and challenging to after a three month layoff, we're going to call back all the Cleveland Cavaliers under these uh, very trying, difficult circumstances, and these guys are going to play uh, eight to ten meaningless games, but. Maybe that, you know, helps make the team whole from advertising revenue and from rights fees. With the, not, it doesn't make them whole, but at least it's something uh, as it relates to rights fees and advertising revenue from the team broadcast. Maybe. I don't know. Have
0: you, being in, in the Fox Sports Southwest world, is there any um, communication from corporate in terms of, of anything? I no.
1: Mean, no. No, no, there is not. There is not. I mean, we're we, anticipating going to a studio and calling games from
0: a, re, from a remote yes, know, yes. place in Dallas.
1: Yes, I am. I am anticipating doing that. And if we did not do that, if we somehow managed to be on site, I would be very, very surprised if that's how it turned out. Um, I was not aware. I did not hear them say specifically. Somebody texted me about this on Saturday morning. Uh, So I don't know if the Bundesliga announcers that we heard, you know, we did not hear the typical Fox Sports coverage uh, of Bundesliga games that started German soccer games on Saturday morning. So what you know, because I've been a part of a few of these broadcasts in the past, how Fox Sports covers Bundesliga games is that especially for the marquee matchups, they have an American crew based in Los Angeles calling the games off a monitor for the American audience. Uh, And then for lesser matches that they'll still clear on FS1 or FS2, then they'll just use the World Feed. So uh, the other day, the World Feed was what was used for everything. Because of work restrictions in California, they did not let people go into the studio at Fox out in L.A. and do those Bundesliga games. Uh, And somebody said that they heard that the, the World Feed guys were in separate rooms. So, I don't think that they were on site in the Bundesliga games and whatever studio they called from. They even called them so they could physically distance from separate rooms in their studio. Uh, where
0: was that studio? Uh,
1: that I don't know where that studio is though. yeah, okay. I'm not sure where the Bundesliga's world feed originates from. My, my assumption would be somewhere in Europe. Um, but but that was their approach to it. So, you know, we're gonna have, look, we're gonna have a lot of uh, uh, logistical things to work out, you know uh, all over the place. Uh, I can't get into it a whole lot right now, uh, but I know that, uh, you know, from the Mavs perspective, um, you know, they're going to uh, I know that there are people behind the scenes talking about being as creative as possible and leaving no stone unturned and willing to be try different things to liven up the broadcast as much as possible. In terms of, so you're
0: saying replace skin with like inflatable Mavs man, or?
1: <laughs> liven up the uh, not the announcer talent, but oh, the sound. My yeah. No, yeah, I love you. <laughs> <Skinner>. <laughs> we're not going to have you doing your stand-up routine. Or oh no, that'll that'll crater the ratings. <laughs> I mean, I know you do eight shows in a weekend, but we're not. That was in the old days. Um, <laughs> but, but I know I know that we're looking into. You know, my understanding is, and I don't want to say mo- much more than that, but we're, you know, will I think we're going to be open to being as creative as possible to trying things to to see what can liven up the telecast. Because it's it's obviously weird watching a sporting event with no fans in the stands. And, well, I know if you guys
0: are, you know, you're a perfectionist and you, you, are, you come away from a remote broadcast thinking, okay, wow, that wasn't really, and it's not as great as being on site, but as someone who watched you do the World Cup from a remote location, I don't notice as a layman that much difference, right? So I don't think the quality is going to be, that much worse. I know, obviously, the preference is to be there, but I, I don't think there should be a lot of consternation that it's just going to be a significantly less valuable broadcast.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I, I think the uh, the consternation is over the fact that it's that that you won't have fans, and so that. Um, I mean, I've done sight a ton level. of yeah, I've done a ton of soccer games, and you get the effects from the site pumped into your headphones, so you hear the crowd and you know all of those sort of things. So that helps you. Uh, create some of your own energy as a broadcaster, but it's just going to be it's going to be a weird sound, obviously. And, you know, Joe Buck has said we've got to pump crowd sound into the games. I mean, I know that he suggested that. And, uh, you know, I said when I was on with the ticket a couple of weeks ago when they asked me about that, I said, I'm not opposed to that. I'm not signing off on it either. I think that basically this is going to be a time that's going to challenge us as people who uh, announce broadcast and the people who work behind the scenes as producers and directors. We're just going to have to try some different things, man. And we're going to have to be willing to take some risk and be creative and be innovative. And some of these things will work. Some won't. Let's give them all a try and see what's good. And I, th- I hope that everybody will bear with us. Uh in all of these things, not just the broadcasters, but you know, it's difficult for the players. Uh, you know, we're all going to have to understand that this is going to, this is a, uh, never before experienced time in our life. And if we're going to get sports back, we're going to have to, as Bob said on the podcast earlier, crawl before we can walk. And that's what these sort of games are going to represent.
0: If you ever watch, you know, the summer league game, especially in the, the side gym yeah. next to the Thomas and Mac center, uh, You know, those aren't vociferous fans. Sometimes those those, you're hearing a lot of squeaky shoes there too, and it's not. There's no issue with that, so I think we can get through that. Let me ask you. I do too. I do too. Let me ask you. From uh, we did see golf, NASCAR, and and the Bundesliga golf in an exhibition come back last weekend. Uh, Is there any lessons that you're seeing from the Bundesliga, um, you know, early on that, you know, are things we need to look for in the return of the NBA?
1: Uh, I didn't see anything other than I just know that the Bundesliga uh, has, you know, a very, I think I told you last week that they've said 322 people are the number of people that are allowed in a stadium at any one time. Uh, and, And that's not fans. That's 322 players, coaches, support staff stadium workers that are essential that have to be there to make sure that the lights are on and and the power is running and all that sort of stuff and I don't know how they arrived at that number of 322 just typical German precision I guess and some sort of formula down to the how many people per square meter we can have there um you know you're just gonna have to have really uh tight protocols and uh, lengthy uh restrictive tight protocols in place and I guess I guess to answer your question, Brian, I, I do have something I would like to say to that, um, and this is, you know, I don't go down this road in, in this sort of form very often, but I did think it was interesting, and maybe to break this out up, in a
0: song or something. No,
1: no, no, okay. I, 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 I don't remember if I brought this up to you or not, and and that is, I was really struck by what I read when the Bundesliga got the go-ahead from the German government, and I read what the CEO of Borussia Dortmund said. And the CEO of uh, RB Leipzig said, and for that matter, the CEO of the entire league, the, the the equivalent position there of the commissioner of the league. And they all pointed to the fact that they had been given great responsibility by the German government. So therefore, we have to behave Uh, We have to follow these safety protocols to the letter. That's why there was a big uproar about a Hertha Berlin player who was seen on video shaking hands with players in the training room after his coronavirus test had come back negative. And then that caused a big uproar of, look at this guy flaunting physical distancing regulations. So, so I was really struck by what those three individuals I just spoke of said about government has put a great deal of trust in us. We have an immense responsibility to demonstrate that we can, we can demonstrate we were worthy of that trust and we can show that we can bring football back in a safe way for our fans here in Germany to at least watch and we can be part of restoring normalcy to our country. And so it was interesting to hear people talk that way because I, you know, maybe I'm wrong on this and maybe whenever leagues come back in the U S we will hear this but I was struck by the fact that there were people talking about thank you for the trust that you've placed in us, and now we're going to you know with great you know, we're going to uphold that trust and we're going to be able to responsibly demonstrate we were worthy of it. And it shined a light on, I think, what more of a cooperative spirit exists between European citizenry and their government. And I think what you would have to be honest, Brian, you would have to say is, uh, especially depending on uh, what your affiliation is and who 's dictating the rules, how it 's a much more adversarial relationship to be perfectly honest with you between United States citizenry and how they view government and so will we hear you know we probably will because i don 't I think that the heads of leagues understand that this is not this is a time to be you know showing unity as much as possible but but you know what will we hear from? People in sports leagues in America, when it's time to start, will they be uh, as gracious and will they say the things that I heard the guys say in Germany? So so to me, that's the interesting lesson out of all of it. It isn't how they put on the games. It's just what they said in Germany and how I was struck by, you know, I don't know that you would hear those kinds of things said in America because, as I said, adversar- there's much more of an adversarial relationship, to be perfectly honest with you, I think, between uh, American citizenry and their their views of government. Well,
0: the good news is that sports does bring people together, at least within a tribe, so that Mavs fans, whatever side they are politically, can all rally around them when sports comes back.
1: Yeah, because Bob, Bob said it on uh, our podcast. Uh, you know, the unfortunate thing is there's going to be a time when, uh, you know, Sports coming back is going to be politicized in some way, you know, and and I hope that's not the case. Um, And I think
0: Silver is being really careful in how he's approaching it. He knows he was the first one to stop it. He knows he's going to be looked at when he restarts it. And that's why you see such deliberate comments from him and such concern about testing and how they're doing it. And, uh, you know, I have confidence that, you know, the steps they're taking, you see the MLB kind of a lot of internal fighting, Tons of different ideas and plans have been floated out there. Like Snell
1: saying, and this isn't worth it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So I think the NBA seems to have a united front and wanting to return, wanting to do it the right way. And and that if that does happen, you won't see a lot of friction when it does, you know, start up. And that our big concerns can be, you know, how uh, the Mavs are doing in crunch time.
1: I thought, you know, since you're asking me about this weekend, I don't know if you watched much of it or not. I thought the NASCAR race was really good. I thought the coverage was very good. And Mike Joy and Jeff Gordon did a phenomenal job sitting in a studio. Uh, I I thought they were absolutely outstanding. There was one kind of funny point in the race that I watched that was really interesting where Denny Hampton, there was was, uh, an advertising banner. It wasn't painted on one of the walls at Darlington. It was like a, it was a banner. And so uh, a car just scraped the wall enough where it actually tore this piece of advertising banner and was stuck in the car, in the, in the grill of the car, basically. And so they had an interior shot of the camera, and they were showing that oil temperature and engine temperature were getting too hot because that was restricting airflow. Right. And, and those guys from, I mean, Larry McReynolds was part of this too, with Mike Joy and with Jeff Gordon and, and McReynolds and Jeff Gordon said, well, he's going to have to try to get up right on the bumper of another car to disturb the airflow. So that will then create a draft and pull that piece of advertising banner off the front of his car. And I'll be damned if, if he didn't do it and that actually worked. And then it flew back and got stuck in the grill of the car behind Denny Hamlin. So that was, uh, you know, they it was a unique situation. And I mean, I thought there got those guys guys I only watch maybe you know twenty minutes of that NASCAR race, thirty minutes at top of that NASCAR elitist. race.
0: You watch you know, foreign soccer <laughs> and, and Tour de France and you know <laughs> <laughs> NASCAR is way too common, man, for you.
2: Well, I did
1: enjoy watching it. And I thought those guys, uh, since since you asked me a minute ago, I, I would be remiss if I did not. I've always thought their telecast on Fox for NASCAR when they have it with, with Mike Joy and those guys are really good. And I thought the the Joy, Jeff Gordon, Larry McReynolds group, uh, sitting in a studio and having to deal with that unique situation, they were fantastic in what I saw the other day.
0: I did think it was a little aggressive when, when you asked if, uh, you know, harp would just do the ah, for fan noise <laughs> for crowd noise instead of other commentary i did not do that <laughs> well i think it'll all work out oh, we'll get there we will we week will. by week we, we see you know further inching in that direction um so we've that's gone, it
1: feels like a lava flow that's that's how slow it feels like it's moving there it is science you yo, <laughs> yo. Um,
0: Well, that is it for us this week. Join us next week for another exciting edition of 77 Minutes in Heaven. Thanks for joining us.